Welcome to DIA Today, Democracy in America Today. I'm Matt Parks alongside Dave Corbin. Glad to have you with us as we explore the ideas behind the day's headlines. My lift, I seize pollution. Those dirty fuels are burning. The Earth's whole climate's churning. Clean energy solution. My ride, I scans the bill. Fossil fuels are cheap. Wind and solar too steep. Drill, baby, drill. Predefined misaligned, polarized division. Shuttered mind, worse than blind. 2020 vision. Welcome back, Dave. Been a while. That was three months, four months. I don't, can't even tell. Went by quickly. Maybe Christmas time, last time we taped an episode, am I remembering correctly? How are you doing? Good. Yeah, I mean, it's it's been a while, but I don't think either of us has been idle, right? So we've we've both started new positions in the time since we last uh, recorded an episode. You want to give us all a little update? Sure. Well, all that um, all that good uh, neighborliness in Texas and, and brisket uh, paid off and uh, I am now uh, head of school at the Geneva School of Bernie, uh, which is a little outside of San Antonio. Super excited to be here. It, it kind of fulfills the prophecy of 25 years ago when I told you that I was neither an East Coast nor a West Coast Straussian, but a Gulf Coast Straussian. That's, <laughs> That's right. So uh, shrimp, grits, and Strauss. Uh, but uh, super Brett happy Favre to be back in those days. Exactly. Yeah. Mississippi, all, all of that. Still haven't picked out my college football team. I might just upset everyone by, you know, saying roll tide or something like that, <laughs> going with Alabama. But uh, yeah, we're we're uh, blessed to be here and um, left a great community of people in Providence, a great board and, and a great set of uh, faculty and staff there, and then have just kind of landed in a, in a great place as well. So getting to know people here and everyone's very friendly and generous with their time. And it's uh yeah, it's a great time for our family, a new chapter. How about yourself? Yeah, that's good. No, you got a lot of pressure there, though, if you're going to pick a college football team, especially with this new SEC development. So you can't even do like, a, well, I've got my Big 12 team and I've got my SEC team, right? Now that now that Texas is going to be in the SEC, um, yeah, you, you're going to have to go one way or the other. I guess you're closer to, to UT Austin, right? And then there's Baylor, uh, another possibility. So, yeah. It won't be easy. You better do some internal polling, I think, before you get get too vocal about that. Well, we learned a little bit of that culture at at the uh, Geneva commencement when uh, we we heard the cat calls from the audience when they were announcing what schools the high school graduates <laughs> okay. were going to and sick them bears, right? Hook them horns, you wreck them raiders. A uh, and M's just whoop whoop. So there's a lot of okay. a lot of that, and uh, yeah. It's uh, you gotta gotta learn the culture. So uh, Saturday, I mean, the hard thing you have to watch football on Saturdays and Sundays. Uh, <laughs> uh, shucks. So anyway, yeah, that's not gonna bother you too much, I don't think. No. Yeah. Well, in the meantime, at at Kings, I'm I'm taking on the role this year of interim provost. Uh, it won't be a, a full time gig or permanent gig, I should say. It is definitely a full time gig, but it won't be a permanent one. But um, one year in the in the captain seat on the academic side, and then. And then back to uh, professoring. Yeah, I'm sure I'm going to try to twist your arm to get you down here to Texas. So just just <laughs> just know that's coming. So, okay. so you know, we're starting a new season today, and um, 
we had originally planned to do an, an eight week quick run through Aristotle's politics. Um, and then as we looked at it more closely, I think we thought there is no real eight week quick run through Aristotle's politics that actually covers Aristotle's politics. So, yeah, so I, what we're going to try to do is over what we'd call it like two regular college semesters uh, this fall and next spring, we're going to try to go through the entirety of Aristotle's politics in 39 lessons. But, but knowing how hard it is to pay attention and listen in for an hour and over an hour, which were the other episodes, we are going to pare down what we say. We're going to be less professorial uh, and, and try to make these 30-minute podcasts, which means that uh, we'll have uh, one or two of the older segments uh, in there, but we'll, we'll sprinkle them around. I know it's going to be rough for some people. I had a really great season predicting games and and everything sports last year. That was huge. So that was that was huge, uh, huge. And uh, but uh, I think that we you know we'll do a little bit of that, but we'll get it down to half an hour so um, you can have us over a lunch rather than a fine dinner. And uh, and I'm excited. I, I mean, Aristotle's Politics is you know one of the three or four books on politics that I think. Uh, establishes it as as really the the great um, practical art, and he does a wonderful job explaining what politics is. And you, know, you think we need to understand what politics is, or rightly understood, in the year twenty twenty one? If you if you don't, turn on your TV at night, and and uh, <laughs> you get a lot of talk, but but not much um, philosophically informed uh, politics. So that's what we hope uh, to provide, uh, and part of the longer term vision, right? Where you just you're always trying to teach rather than to agitate. Right. Yeah, I think it's a great follow-on for democracy in America. I mean, chronologically, obviously, we're doing things in, in the reverse order, but I think we've had a chance to, to dig into the modern context, the democratic context, obviously, especially with American institutions in mind. And now we get to take a step back and get a broader view of regimes. You know, Aristotle is great because he gives you this kind of comprehensive framework and then we realize as we move forward in history that, you know, choices begin to be made. And, you know, historically, we start going down the democracy track that has certain consequences. You know, Tofu helps us with this because he gives us aristocracy as the alternative. But, but we have an even bigger world when we look at Aristotle. And so I think that's going to help us, too, to get an appreciation for, you know, what, what are the, the, the questions that we've implicitly answered one way or another? And what are the consequences of, of answering them? in the ways that we have. So we probably should have let off with the fact that, as I'm sure everybody knows, we got some new music and uh, a neat story behind that. Uh, one of our listeners sent us a note saying he was enjoying the podcast and uh, he's a composer and you know, does his own songs down in Nashville and got authorization to allow us to use the song. Uh, it's called 2020 Vision worse than blind. And so we'll, we'll include all the details on that in, in the show notes, encourage you to check it out, check out his music and, and uh, you know, his other projects. But anyway, really, really neat that, that he was willing to do that and, and wanted to share with us a song that had a lot of connections with the kinds of themes we're talking about on the show. All right, well, let's turn our attention now to Aristotle's politics. Dave, we're going to start off with a relatively modest selection from Book one, why don't you get us going? Probably the first thing that I'd like to do for the audience, and this is really kind of the first class, so to speak, of a semester, is, oh boy, is, provide, 
Yeah, no, we're, we're not going to pass out a syllabus, but, but just give you an overview as to why Aristotle's politics is important and what context it falls in, in terms of Aristotle's overall works, uh, who Aristotle was, so these kind of bigger questions. Um, most people know, right, that Aristotle was a student of, of Plato. Uh, he came to Athens at the age of 17 and, and spent about two decades uh, within Plato's academy, uh, learning about the important questions that uh, Plato asks and, and writes about in his dialogues. And uh, thereafter, uh, establishes his own uh, lyceum. Uh, he's connected to Philip of Macedon's um, regime. Uh, he was teacher of Alexander, uh, moved back to Athens, uh, came into a little bit of trouble because of his uh, relationship uh, with the Macedonians, but uh, does his best in, in two works, uh, the Nicomachean Ethics and the Politics, which we'll study, uh, to talk about the subject that is contained within uh, Plato's famous Republic. Uh, these questions, uh, what is human flourishing? Uh, what does human happiness amount to are taken up in the ethics and what form of government can best secure that for a society and for individuals is really this, the, the discussion uh, of the politics. And you'll, you see this right off the bat when you read Aristotle, he's a very different read uh, than Plato. Uh, Plato writes uh, primarily in dialogue form and Aristotle lectures. And uh, we have Aristotle's lectures contained on a variety of different subjects, uh, but uh, Aristotle is very deliberate and very exact uh, in his presentation uh, of a matter. He, read, he reads much more like a, an engineer or a scientist uh, on, on whatever topic he's discussing. And uh, like a good uh, engineer or uh, a true scientist, uh, Aristotle emphasizes the importance of observing things. Uh, how do you understand something? You have to observe it, you have to see it in action, uh, and you have to try to understand the nature of the thing through observation. So one important uh, paradigm that you ought to remember as you're reading through Aristotle is what I would call a four-cause method of understanding the nature of things. Everything in this world has a nature, uh, but there are four parts to the nature of a thing. Uh, there is the efficient cause of the thing, uh, which is similar to saying the primary cause, how a thing came into being. Uh, there is the formal cause of a thing, which is really kind of its defined um, specific entities. Uh, there's the essential or material cause of the thing, what, what materially the thing is. And then most importantly for Aristotle, there's the final cause of a thing. It's purpose. It's it's meaning for being. So everything has a has a way that it came into being. It has a form. It has an essence, and it has a telos or a trajectory or or a purpose. And this is no different uh, when we're trying to understand politics. And and we see in this uh, initial uh, set of chapters where he introduces politics, what its primary, formal, essential, and and final uh, causes are. And the hope for Aristotle, I think much like the hope for Plato and, and Plato's teacher, Socrates, is that if we can study rightly the nature of things, and we can apply this, this method to both ethics and politics, then we're going to be able to see that the learning more about the enterprise of human flourishing or learning more about the human enterprise of politics is possible uh, and can lead us to live uh, better lives, more flourishing lives as individuals, 
and better lives within uh, political communities. So philosophy is an aid to politics, uh, to human beings as political animals, not a threat uh, to it. Uh, so that's an overview, Matt, of, of why. Yeah, and if I could just add briefly to that, there's really two key words I think you could use to characterize at the root the purpose of the two works you've mentioned. Nicomachean ethics is about happiness. The politics is about justice. So if, if you ever wonder, well, is Aristotle relevant for today? Is there anything we, we, we can learn from Aristotle 2,400 years after these works were written? You can ask yourself, well, are you interested in happiness? Or are you interested in justice? And so if we think about this whole study as a quest to understand the intersection of happiness and justice, then I think we're gonna see immediately uh, the relevance of pursuing this and, and very quickly we'll see applications from even examples that seem very distant from us chronologically and experientially to our, our present political concerns. So that said, Matt, uh, Aristotle begins the politics, book one, uh, chapter one, by writing the following. Every state is, as we see, so here he's observing, a sort of partnership. And every partnership is formed with a view to some good, since all the actions of all mankind are done with a view to what they think to be good. It is therefore evident that while all partnerships aim at some good, the partnership that is the most supreme of all and includes all the others does so most of all and aims at the most supreme of all goods. And this is the partnership entitled the state, the political association. So here, Aristotle begins his treatise on politics by pointing out what the final cause, right? That final purpose of all politics is, which is the establishment of the city-state. And the city-state comes into being, the city-state is a partnership, right? For the common good. Now, right off the bat, we see the difference between the way that Aristotle's understanding politics and the way that politics is playing out today or the way that we see politics play out today. We're not thinking in terms of partnership. We're thinking in terms of partisanship. Now, partisanship can eventually lead to partnership if it has partnership in mind. But if you're a partisan with no desire to partner, right, then you're not doing politics as Aristotle would suggest that we do politics, which is with an idea for the common good. Right. And with a, a sense that there actually is a common good, right, that there's something there's actual content to that, uh, that it's not just the disparate sum of a whole bunch of different opinions or some entirely relativistic notion that emerges out of whoever can get 50% plus one in the last election. That's now imposed upon us as the common good, but there's actually a good, right? So you say a capital G good, and there's a common good. There's something about human beings. There is a true notion of human flourishing to use the phrase you were using earlier. What's interesting is, you know, we find this language and these ideas um, very prominent at the American founding. So, you know, even though Aristotle, again, is, is so many years ago, we, we have an American context for this kind of discussion. You, you read the Federalist, you will see all kinds of influence of, of the language of common good, justice, happiness. You go and read John Adams' thoughts on government. 
same thing, right? Same, same basic framework. Uh, there, there's some elements that would be departures from Aristotle. We'll get to those as we move our way along. But, but, but the basic framework that there is a common good to be achieved and, and pursued, and that government has a key role in doing that and in moving us toward flourishing and happiness, that, that's all there right through the founding era and beyond. And yet, as you say, very much absent from our normal political discourse today, except maybe in a, in a formal way. That, that's, not, that's not the language of, of Twitter, <laughs> not the language of, of the press conferences or the press releases or the State of the Union addresses even for that matter. Yeah, and he's no wallflower either because he's going to get into the question. In fact, he gets into it in the next paragraph. Well, who rules and, and how should right. rulers rule? So uh, rule is important, but there is a way of conceiving of proper rule within a partnership. And this is one misconception that Aristotle says that 2,400 years ago, people had about ruling, that all types of ruling are alike. No, well, that's not true. There's a, there's a way in which you rule with the partnership in mind, and there's a way in which you rule in which you're impressing your power upon another. Uh, so this really kind of forms the basis of him going back to what the efficient or primary cause of the city-state is. So he'll go back to the component parts of what makes up politics and, and kind of give us from uh, the embryo forward how we get to the point where we're at the city-state. But interesting here, Matt, he's not only um, suggested all right, that this thing will have a formal and a essential essence, uh, essential quality to it, but it has an end purpose, the common good, and it has a start. So Matt, what is the start of politics? How does politics start and how does it develop over time? Yeah, for Aristotle, it starts with the household. And uh, that's a coming together first of one man and one woman in, in marriage, which naturally produces children. He also talks about labor. And, and so he talks about uh, slavery. He talks about um, physical labor being done by animals, right? So this is one of the things that obviously we're gonna have to re reflect on as we think about the differences between an Aristotelian approach to politics and, and a Christian approach to politics, right? So one of the things that you recall from de Tocqueville that I think was one of the most striking claims that he makes, at least in terms of our, our contemporary political discourse, is that it took the incarnation of Christ to introduce the notion of equality to the world. Now, not to say you can't find it way back in Genesis 1, right? Genesis 1, 2. But as, as Jesus Christ's incarnation led to the church going to the whole world and, and bringing the scriptures of the Old Testament to the world, um, and, and of course, showing, right, in, in the God-man Christ himself, uh, the, the perfection of, of humanity, that 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 was, was a lesson the Greeks hadn't appropriated, right? For Aristotle, there's a line between Greeks and barbarians that, that can't easily be crossed. Uh, there's no stipulation of equality inherent in the Aristotelian project. So um, he starts with the household and then a coming together of households produces a village. And, and we can think about this in a very practical way. What, what can a household produce? Well, you know, you can kind of scrape by, right? But if you have to do everything, make your own food, make your own clothes, it's all going to be bare subsistence. And so if a handful of families get together and begin to divide tasks up, you can 
better life, right? And then more households come together in villages and then villages multiply into a city, you reach a point of self-sufficiency. Basic things can all be provided for by some kind of division of labor. But what's interesting is that Aristotle says, that seems like this sort of a, an almost like economic material endpoint. But while the city, he says, comes into being for the sake of living, it continues for the sake of living well. So there's a, there's a category shift. There's a higher level of achievement that's possible in a city that goes beyond just having all the stuff you need. It, it creates the context for the pursuit of justice. As we said, this is the, the central theme of, of the whole work. And, and it's only in the city where there's enough leisure to talk about justice, where there's opportunity to be able to come together and, and use the, the gift of speech for the purpose of discussing the good and the not good, the right and the wrong, that only happens in the context of a, of a full-formed political community. And so it's this ultimate achievement, he says at the end of, of chapter two, you know, those who founded political communities have done a great thing for humanity because they've made possible an expression of a higher humanity than, than the mere animalistic meeting of our material needs. Which is the ennobling of, of the political enterprise. Man is a political animal, right? Is an ennobling thought or, or idea that, that Aristotle gives us. Our possession of logos, of speech or thought, makes us different from animals. Yes, animals make sounds, but with our speech, with our thought, we make judgments about the world as to what is good, what is evil, what is right, what is wrong. And those judgments are, are good. They, they actually, uh, they, they make it good for human beings that we're actually judging things because the more that we judge and the more that we learn to judge rightly, the more that there's going to be a philosophic reconciliation between different people. So I want to go back to something you just said uh, with, um, with Christianity and the difference between uh, ancient philosophy or classical rationalism as a means to reconciliation and Christianity. Um, to realize that we are image bearers of God, uh, and thus uh, in loving and honoring God, we, we love our neighbor, uh, we recognize the other's uh, equal um, impression of God upon them. Uh, that's difficult in the in the Greek world, in the classical world, because uh, the Greeks uh, believe that there's a natural order of rank among all things, right? That there is definitely natural inequality uh, between different things. But that natural inequality, Aristotle suggests, ought not to produce an artificial inequality. That natural inequality ought not to be reconsidered as my type of person is better than another type of person, or my bloodline is better than your bloodline. So it's, it's injecting right into the way that human beings view, uh, hopefully a clearer sense or clearer desire uh, for, for justice by ob observing things rightly. Uh, so um, I, I think that uh, this, is, this is the project of Aristotle it's to try to uh, teach men how to reconcile their differences by having them remove the shutters from their eyes and observe things as they are, employing common sense, noting where there is natural inequality, but also noting where there is natural equality uh, and letting nature be a guide toward justice uh, and, and being uh, aware 
uh, that artifice and um, uh, corrupt uh, conceptions of of mankind could lead to the reverse, could lead to injustice. And if I could go back to one other earlier point from the passage you read at the beginning of the first chapter of book one, you know, he talks about the most authoritative good of all being achieved in the city. And that's what makes the city the, the highest form of community and, and organization. And it's interesting when we think about, again, the Christian context and the language of the city of man and the city of God that we find so prominent in Augustine and, and to conceive of the, the city beyond the earthly cities, right? the, the possibility of a city that actually achieves the ultimate purposes of, of human beings. If you go back to speaking about final causes, the first question of the Westminster Shorter Catechism, what's the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And, and that can't ultimately be achieved by the political means of the city. And yet the city can create a context in which people can pursue the highest things, the ultimate glory of God and their happiness in him. And so that's one of the things we'll be sorting out, I think, as we work our way through this. Right? What, is, what is the role of politics in, in making room for the attainment of, of the happiness that we can achieve on earth and the ultimate happiness that we can only achieve in Christ. Yeah, I think one of the great dangers for us in the 21st century is to try to set aside politics uh, or to to not want it to be ennobled as it as it ought to be because I think it can be an aid to human flourishing and uh, to justice. I mean, how many times do you hear people Matt say, "You know what? I'm really not political." Well, Aristotle would say that's bunk. Of course, you're political. It's like you're, you're saying, I'm not human, right? To, to say that you're human is to say that you are a political animal. Uh, I mean, you hear people often all the time, like they feel great about themselves. I'm, I'm kind of a social butterfly. Well, are you a social being? Yes. Now you can be a, you can be a, a very social being or not so social being. You can be a, a, a very informed, fair political animal. Uh, or you can be an obnoxious one, but you can't get around being a political animal. We are political animals. And I hear this all the time. And I think it's, I, I, I don't know where this came from. Everything is downstream from culture. I think what Aristotle is saying is that no, everything human that we observe is downstream from the fact that human beings are political animals. And I think that if we go back to this idea that, okay, well, there's a, there's a primary cause to us being a political animal. There's a, there's a formal um, essence to us being a political animal, that, that being that we possess a thought or speech. Uh, there are material or essential needs that we have, but that there is a purpose to us being a political animal. If we understand politics that way, it's really going to improve upon our modern teaching of who we are uh, as beings that is purely or tends to be purely material, where all we have are material needs uh, that we need uh, to be uh, provided for us, uh, secured for us. Uh, and hence, everything is kind of a battle between one side or another uh, to get the biggest piece of the pie. And that's a lot of uh, politics today, at least as I see it um, on uh, air the airwaves. That seems to be what sells, right? So in terms of attracting voters and building coalitions, it's it's the meeting of those material needs that everybody seems to respond to, um, at least you know in the most immediate sense. Maybe there's an underlying 
need for something more, but we're not very good at expressing that. And maybe we best express it, unfortunately, in our, in our hatred for others rather than our love for, for some ultimate good. Did we get that to 15 minutes, Matt? Was that our, our little snippet of a, a teaching on the politics? Yeah, I think that's pretty good. So next week, we're going to look at uh, chapter three, which develops a little bit more on, on the particulars of the household. So we'll begin to talk about Aristotle's conception of the family and the household and, and see how that applies to our contemporary questions and, and some of the challenges that we face in our day. All right, well, so we're going to wrap up the show this week with um, one of our old chestnuts, the grade book. So as Dave said, we're going to rotate crystal ball, grade book, maybe some other segments in and out as, as time allows, as, as occasion calls for. So we won't do this every time, but we want to have a little bit of fun each time and, and a little bit of uh, maybe a lighter end to the show. So this is really a callback to last year, Dave. You might remember last July, we did an episode where we looked at uh, the possibility of the Washington Redskins and Cleveland Indians both choosing new names for their teams. And of course, Washington has temporarily adopted the name, the Washington football team, used that last year, and apparently is gonna use that this year. And then Cleveland, maybe in a less public way, was kind of working through various options. And uh, just this last week, they announced that they will now be called the Cleveland Guardians. Uh, and I don't know if you remember, but that was actually on the list of names we talked about last summer because of the local connection with the, the statues on the Hope Memorial Bridge, which are called the Guardians of Traffic. Not exactly maybe the next superhero movie there, but um, you know, still a, a local landmark. Um, and, and so they've adopted the Cleveland Guardians as their new name. They've begun to kind of the rebranding process. Want to get your thoughts, Grade, on, on the Cleveland Guardians. I think civil engineers in Ohio and across the nation are, are more proud today that there is actually a mascot that's kind of named after their work. So you, know, you kind of want to give it, you can't give it less than a C there because that's a, that's a group of people that have long gone unnoticed. I mean, we use their roads, we drive on them. It's like traffic lights. They just become things that you expect. So I love that. I love, I love that aspect of things. The name itself though, you know, I, I probably would have gone, I actually like Washington football team. Uh, I may have gone like Cleveland baseball team. Why don't we just like with Boston baseball team, we'll just kind of make it, make it really simple. There can't be any controversy around it. It's just kind of name of the city and what it does. And now I'm sure like five years down the road, there'll be some problem with naming things baseball or football because they'll, there'll be something there in that word that's well, problematic. Some of those cities are a little problematic. So, that's right. That's that's true. Well, yeah, you're but not, uh, you're not doing that well if you just have you still have Washington, maybe. Yeah, I didn't think about that. Or you know, we just like see baseball team, or we could we could figure out a way to a make color. it. Yeah, okay, yeah, exactly. Completely politically correct, so no one is offended. But yeah, Gar, I, I'm going to give Guardians a C plus, B minus. Yeah, I thought. I mean, I appreciate the effort with the you know Tom Hanks video to roll it out. I I think everyone in the world is googling. Tom Hanks Cleveland after that came out because no one thought of Tom Hanks as having a Cleveland connection, but apparently he does. Spent three summers there doing some acting early on in his career and kind of saw that as a formative time. So he's always had a special relationship with Cleveland, uh, unknown to me and I think many others. But anyway, good for him. Narrated the video. I mean, you can't beat Tom Hanks as a narrator for a video. The thing that struck me was when they got to the end and they showed the, the, the script logo, 
how much guardians actually looks like Indians, right? So the last five letters are the same. And, and so they kind of use the same script. And so you almost don't even notice the difference. Now, of course, when they do other parts of it, there's got the big G that's obviously different, but, but uh, there seemed to be a, an effort for some continuity there. And I, you know, and I, I appreciate the local tie-in, but I, I do think as, as like an image of a team you don't want to deal with, right? It, watch out, the guardians are coming. I don't think it quite pulls that off. So I think I give it a B minus. You know, it was one of the two that I identified on the list last time as, as like as Spiders was my number one choice, which was their old name back in the 19th century, uh, the National League team that was in Cleveland. So that would have been great, but maybe that was too much of a stretch. I still think Rock and Rollers would have been the best name, but yeah, what, yeah. what do I know? All right. Well, that's going to wrap it up for this week. Glad to be back at this and always grateful for you listening and joining in the conversation. Don't forget you can contact us by email, democracy in America today at gmail.com. And we'll look forward to talking to you again next week. Twitty, twitty vision.